0: So, last week, Pastor Daryl talked about repentance. This week, we're talking about forgiveness. And so, our Bible reading today is from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant or parable of the unforgiving servant. So, I'm going to read that now. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that He and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, I will get it back. until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you open it to our hearts and open our hearts to what you have to say to us today. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's an uncomfortable parable. It's a fairly simple story, but the way it's presented in the text, it it seems to take the principal joy of the Christian faith and call it into question. And the principal joy of the Christian faith is that we are forgiven of our sin by a God who loves us and who will not expose us to his wrath because of that forgiveness. Nothing can snatch us from his hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But in the story... This servant displays a moment of anger and greed, and then the master unforgives him his total of 10,000 talents, or 10,000 bags of gold, and sends him to be tortured until he pays back everything he owes. Now, how much is 10,000 talents? It's not important. It's a zillion billion dollars. It's more than a servant could conceivably pay off, let alone someone uh, who is trying to work from home at, as a business model so that he could run that business while being tortured in the money dungeon. Um, that's pretty horrible. Fortunately, we are not required to take this parable in its most literalist reading. It's the sentiment of the parable, the meaning of the parable that Jesus wants us to get. And that meaning is fairly straightforward. Our God is a God of forgiveness. And if you call him Lord and Savior, you become an agent of forgiveness yourself, and you are yourself forgiven. And if you don't live your life as an agent of forgiveness, then obviously the God of forgiveness isn't actually your Lord. That's what Jesus is saying when he's telling Peter that his forgiveness should extend up to 77 times. Again, the specific number isn't that important. Jesus is just playing off the words. Seven times more like 77 times, more like 7,777 times. If you're counting forgivenesses off in instances with a limit, then you are not forgiving people. You are in fact keeping accounts of the things they have done. You're just biding time. And we rely on God's forgiveness being limitless for us because we know that we continue to sin. So our forgiveness for others must ultimately be limitless as well. But we'd be naive to say that forgiveness was a simple business that we could just describe as forgiveness, just be forgiving and then walk away from that. It's obvious to anyone who has had to forgive anyone that it's more complicated than that, especially if the other person involved didn't particularly earn that forgiveness. And there's a difference between the kind of forgiveness you offer to someone who steps on your toe and the kind of forgiveness you have to offer to someone who burns your house down intentionally and does not apologize. And through Scripture, we see forgiveness introduced to us in a variety of ways through this kind of spectrum of what forgiveness means. And if we're going to live our lives as agents of forgiveness in this world, then there might be nothing more in this world more important to us to understand than forgiveness. So let's take a look at these kinds of forgiveness and precisely what they mean. I've listed the three that I would like to talk about here, which I think are sort of the three big categories uh, up on that screen there, exoneration, forbearance, and release. One of them is God's ultimate promise of forgiveness to us, which we are required to practice in our lives. That's exoneration. Another is God's immediate but temporary promise of forgiveness to us, which we are also required to practice in our lives. We're calling that forbearance. And the third kind of forgiveness is one which God does not himself offer to us. He doesn't need to, but which we are still required to practice in our lives, and that is release. And in fairness... I uh, did not come up with these terms for the forgiveness categories myself. They come from a psychologist called Dr. Stephen Marmer, who studies the field of forgiveness and the psychology of forgiveness, and I found them very biblically applicable, so I've replicated them here. But the first kind of forgiveness we're talking about is exoneration. And to exonerate someone is to remove completely any trace of guilt they had for an offense that they have committed against you. It's to treat them as if it never happened in the first place. And these verses have the example of it, and Isaiah uh, 43.25, it talks about the God who blots out our transgressions and remembers our sin no more. In Psalm 103.12, which Leona uh, brought up to us as well, talks about how our transgressions, our sins, are removed from us so completely as the East is from the West, poetically as far as something can be from something else. And 1 Corinthians 13.5 reminds us that love keeps no record of wrongs and thus forgives those wrongs as they come. So Exoneration means, then, to reset a relationship to a state of innocence from like before the offence that took place began. Any debt uh, that is incurred by the hurt that someone's dealt to another is forgiven. It's considered paid in full. No lasting action takes place to punish the offender or to protect the injured party as if they expect they will be attacked again. The offence is not called upon later as evidence against the offender later in the relationship. It's as if the offense never happened. And this is the best forgiveness. It's what we're ultimately receiving from God when he tells us that though our sins are red as scarlet, we can be white as snow. When we are called to judgment, we will not be held to be guilty of our transgressions against God. We will be exonerated, we'll be set free, God will find us innocent. He will recognize us as new creations who are not guilty of that sin. And this is the kind of forgiveness that's only possible in a relationship between people on earth where there is trust because it leaves the forgiver open and vulnerable to re-offense. And if someone offends again after they've been exonerated in this way, after they've been forgiven so totally, it damages a person's ability to forgive at all. And the heart begins to toughen and become defensive. It's bad for friendships. It's death for marriages. Absolutely death. So when do we try and exonerate people? When do we offer this complete, uh, like, slate-wiping clean forgiveness? Well, we do that when the offense is a a genuine accident to which no fault can be assigned. That's an obvious one. If someone bumps into you when you're rounding a corner, then obviously it wasn't their fault. You forgive them, even though a little part of you is crying out for justice, for the indignity of them walking too close to the wall coming around the corner. You just let it go. You forgive them. It's as if it never happened. Uh, You Forgive if the offender is a child or someone who really doesn't understand the hurt that they are inflicting. You can't hold that against them as a moral fault, similar to the first category there. And when the kids decide they need to take the goldfish out of the water to play, you must forgive them completely, even though they don't understand why Mr. Bubbles has gone to live on a farm, a large wet farm. Um, But here is the hard one. And that's, we are required to exonerate people, to wipe the slate clean and act as if uh, the offense never happened at all. When the offender is truly sorry, when they take responsibility for what they've done without excuses, when they ask forgiveness and they give you a reasonable assurance they won't repeat the same damaging action. In other words, when they repent of the thing they have done. And you can be reasonably sure that their repentance is genuine. When this happens... It's not just possible to exonerate a person, to forgive them in that way. It's mandatory for us to forgive in that way. This is the kind of forgiveness that God requires of us. The relationship will be repaired. And if you can't bring yourself to forgive someone under these circumstances where they've accepted responsibility, they've assured you they won't do it again, and they've asked for forgiveness. If you can't forgive someone under those circumstances, the likelihood is there's something more wrong with you than with the person who hurt you, and that may require reflection and possibly counselling. So that's exoneration. But what if the offender isn't a child, and the offence wasn't an accident, but there's something incomplete about the way the person repents? Maybe they give you the partial uh, apology, the I'm sorry but uh, that we 've all heard the not particularly satisfying, not completely responsibility taking version of a repentance, what if they what if they even say the right words and they seem sincere, but it 's the fifth, the sixth, the seventh time that they have made the same apology for the same offense? Well, we are still called to be forgiving, but this is a situation that requires what we can call forbearance. forbearance is uh, Different from exoneration in the sense that exoneration is God's ultimate promise of forgiveness for us. It's what we are looking forward to when we meet God on that final day in judgment and he declares us not guilty of all our sins. Forbearance is God's immediate promise of forgiveness. Uh, Every sinner who has given their life to Christ knows that they continue to wrestle with sin for the duration of the rest of their life. And sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. We continue to offend against the Lord. We continue to fall short of his standards. But God continues to forgive us persistently along the way. And he forbears with us even though we sin against him. One day we will stand in that kingdom remade and sinless and without temptation and exonerated from our misdeeds. But here and now we remain sinners. And while we remain sinners, God forbears with us. He accepts our incomplete offering of forgiveness of, uh, of repentance to him because he knows the final product he intends to bring forth in the end is this completed, renewed person. And thus Luke 17.3, similar to our earlier reading, has Jesus telling the listeners that if someone uh, sins against you seven times in a day and comes back seven times in that day repenting again, we are required to forgive them seven times in that day we are to forbear with them even though they repeatedly sin against us we're to forbear with the fact that their repentance isn't particularly deep based on their actions because god forbears with us when we sin and we repent and we repeat the sin and with the power of forbearance it's possible to maintain a relationship between imperfect people and between imperfect people and a perfect god Romans two four talks about how God's kindness, His forbearance, and His patience—the uh, way that He endures our behaviour—to lead us towards a true and full repentance. So, what does it mean to show forbearance? What does that actually look like? Well, when you show forbearance to someone who's given you this kind of half forgiveness, this half uh, half repentance, the relationship is repaired somewhat, kind of as much as possible, but not to a state of total innocence. Things can't go back to how they were before the offense took place because the offender is given some reason to believe it might happen again. Wonderful as, uh, as exoneration is, we're not required to deny reality in the way that we forgive people. God doesn't permit us into heaven because he's pretending that we never sinned, like he's covering his eyes and letting us through. He permits us into his kingdom because by the time we get there, we are a completely new creation who will not sin. And he doesn't let us into the kingdom until that happens. That's why we're still here. Until then, we muddle around here, falling down, getting up, struggling to get better and thanking God for how patient and forbearing he is with us. And the same is true with our relationship with each other. The forgiver takes reasonable precautions uh, to guard themselves against further harm when they are forbearing with someone. This is this forgive but don't forget Idea. There's nothing particularly righteous about exposing yourself to pain and exploitation over and over again. And that's why God requires repentance from people and doesn't just forgive them wholesale. Uh, God's in the business of seeing sinful people change their lives. And he is willing to sacrifice along the way to see that happen. And we should be the same. And when someone doesn't recognize the depth of the hurt they have caused you but can only go sort of part of the way to making the apology and the repentance that you require. We're called to reasonably guard ourselves, but to value the relationship enough that we forgive anyway. The offense is not to be used maliciously as a weapon against the offender later on, and if we use someone's sin against them, we haven't really forgiven them. If a friend lies to you repeatedly, it behooves you to take their word with a grain of salt in the future. But if you define them as a liar and call them a liar and use their history of lying as a defence for your own bad behaviour at times, you're not doing anything that encourages them to truly repent and change. And it would be fair to say that your forgiveness has not been genuine. You're only reminding them of their shortcomings. And there's something of a fine line between protecting oneself against harm in this case and clinging to a grievance. But it is our task to find that line in each situation and not to cross over it. And if we do cross over it, we are not forgiving others as God would have us do. And over time, as trust grows, this forbearing forgiveness, we want it to graduate into full exoneration. This isn't to say it goes from half forgiveness to full forgiveness, but it means you can go from a state of wariness and watchfulness to true innocence with this person. Just as God's ultimate forgiveness for us is to wipe away all of our sins and recognize us as innocent, so too must our goal be with those with whom we forbear. When God forgives us, we know that our sinful habits are not immediately cut out of our soul and we are not exempt from temptation. And sometimes it can take years, many years, to break out of a habit or an addiction or a destructive behavior, the kind of thing that really torments a relationship. And thank God that he doesn't require us to be immediately perfect. But he loves us and forbears with us and walks with us and one sin at a time reforms us and sanctifies us and perfects us with the final view being this total exoneration. Now we don't get the kind of the full view of the the person, the soul, the mind of the people that we know. We don't get the full grand view of their soul and everything about them that is flawed and imperfect. Um, and maybe it's best that we don't. We wouldn't want that uh, to be applied to us. But the ability to wage war on those parts of our souls that are sinful and to be able to do so discreetly so that not everyone who loves and respects us sees us at our lowest of lows, that's a gift from God. And so our relationship with other humans is not a complete chart of the way that someone might disappoint us. or or how they might hurt us and then working slowly through that to perfect them ourselves. That's God's work. But one wound at a time, one offense or offensive habit at a time, we must forbear with one another. And when we see that someone has really changed and is no longer the kind of person who would hurt us in that way, it's time to exonerate, to wipe that slate clean, and to remember that sin no more. So when do we forbear with someone? In short, whenever we don't get the full-throated apology and repentance that the offense requires, but when the relationship with the offender is still important and still needs to be preserved. Everyone's received a half-apology at some point before. I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry, but you have to understand. I'm sorry, but uh, if you didn't do that, then I wouldn't have done this. We should certainly reflect on our part in any conflict we are involved in to see if we have some responsibility of our own, and if we do, to apologize, to repent, to make amends as best we can. But even when we conclude that we bear no responsibility, it's still important to forbear and to forgive. It may even be the case that you and the other person have a genuine disagreement about the facts about the offense in question. You might say, oh, you said you'd drive me to the airport at 6 a.m., but you never turned up. No, you told me 6 p.m. I'm sorry you missed your flight, but that's not my fault. And you may know in your head that you said 6 a.m., but they know in their head that you said 6 p.m., but there's nowhere else to go then with that dispute than to forbear, to forgive, and to schedule future pickups in military time. (laughs) Pick me up at 0600 hours. And then you stop dwelling on it and you move on and you forgive. And then a week later, it's nothing more than a funny story to be recounted. That's A and B. And the other time uh, when the, uh, that we show this forbearance is when the offense seems like it may happen again, when that's the character of the offense in question. Anyone who's ever loved someone with an addictive behavior like gambling or drinking or drugs knows this. There's a long sequence of serious hurts, uh, tearful, genuine apologies, repeat offenses over and over again. And when an alcoholic says, I'll never drink again, they usually mean it, and then they usually drink again anyway. That's the self-destructive nature of addiction. And a person like that doesn't need people who enable them. They need people... Uh, who are reasonably protected, but who love them enough to maintain that relationship, however narrow it might have to be. And a fairly modern example is the 25-year-old child who doesn't get a job but stays home playing computer games, half-heartedly gesturing towards maybe studying again or maybe thinking about getting a job. I use this example because I once was this example, and so I do it in all affection. And parents in this situation, God bless you for being as forgiving as you have been. Because I know that there is a slowly building anxiety bomb in your chest as you watch that boy get older and older and further from the kind of confidence and forthrightness he needs to stand up in the world. So forgive him for abusing your free rent and goodwill. But you're actually under the obligation to protect yourself from further abuse and to protect him from self-destruction even if that maybe means kicking him out. Now, the third kind of forgiveness is the hardest. It's the kind that God doesn't practice because in its nature it's actually the act of our submission to God, which God does not obviously need to show. When Romans twelve nineteen warns us against being vengeful, or when I think I have, I have Psalm 103 up there, it should actually be 1 Peter 3, 9 um, when 1 Peter 3, 9 compels us to repay uh, not evil with evil, but evil with blessing. It's our act of surrendering to the knowledge that God will make all things right and that he will punish the wrongs of individuals and he will surrender, and, but we surrender ourselves to his forgiveness. And when we do that, we're actually surrendering our right to hold grudges and grievances on our own account. God will settle those accounts, whether by forgiveness or by punishment. That's his prerogative. This is the hardest because it comes in the cases when the offences are often the deepest, and when the offender's apology is obviously insincere or maybe totally absent altogether. They might not admit they have done anything wrong at all. They might be a masked offender who you don't actually know, who mugs you and then gets away, or, or someone who has offended you deeply or hurt you deeply but dies before there's a possibility of reconciliation. A family who sends their son or daughter off to serve in the military and then loses them to the attacks of the enemy doesn't even have a specific killer to confront but needs some way to forgive. Release does not exonerate the offender of their guilt. It doesn't even say what they've done is right or that they've changed. It doesn't require us to show forbearance with the person involved. But in these cases, God calls us to forgive those who trespass against us by releasing our anger and hurt towards them because the alternative is to live your life defined by the injury someone else has caused to you instead of being defined by the grace of the God who forgives you. In such a case, the relationship, if there was one at all, is either not repaired or sacrificed entirely. A victim of child abuse is under no obligation to, uh, to be relationally reconciled to the person, person who abused them. Um, a man or a woman is not under obligation to remain friends with a person who undermined their marriage. And while God does miracles of reconciliation all the time, the best thing to do in many situations of release is simply to avoid contact with the person who hurt you rather than to relive that pain over and over again and allow it to fester in you. The important thing, the crucial thing, is no matter how severe the hurt that has been done to us, there is nothing to be gained by allowing ourselves to be defined by the hurt that has been done to us. The outrage we feel at the wrongs done to us or to those that we love is a a natural extension of the desire to see justice and fairness in the world. But ultimately, in many cases, we will not see justice done, not on this side. Of heaven, and we are required to give up to God the right to see that ultimate justice done. That means eventually getting to the point where the wounded party decidedly cuts ties with that sense of grievance. And this is not a simple or fast process. It doesn't follow that you are immediately being sinful for not uh, right away releasing your anger at someone who has betrayed you in a deep and lasting way. These things may take time. In some cases, there are additional levels of complications to wade through. Sometimes there's a legal dimension of justice that must be satisfied as well, or one in which an injured party is entitled to some kind of compensation or restitution for what's being done. These are complicating factors. But at the end of the day, when the smoke clears and when there's nothing more to be done, you must do away with fantasies of revenge and the cycle of dwelling on the hurt that has been dealt to you. You must give that over to God. To be victimized is a terrible thing, but to remain a victim, to define oneself as a victim long after the event, is just compounding that agony, and that can only be lifted by releasing our right to cause pain to those who have caused pain to us. And very few of us are so gracious that we can forgive as quickly as Christ is uh, on the cross when he's speaking to the Father about his crucifiers. and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. But we must all concede that as much as we are able, we do better to define our lives by the good we do in the name of Jesus who saved us, and not by the evil and hurt that has been done to us. We're called to release hurts and grievances when offenders are not sorry, or they show no remorse, or they're outside of the possibility of a satisfying repentance or reconciliation. Or sometimes an offense is so grave or harmful that continuing the relationship is just not possible. And in these cases, the minimum forgiveness we are expected to offer is not to repay evil for evil, but to give up vengeance to God, to release the pain of the offense from our heart, to seek to move on without allowing that suffering to define our life. And finally... Release is the kind of forgiveness that we can and must offer to those who don't hurt us directly but who do uh, hurt someone near to us. The person who who dates your best friend and badly mistreats them doesn't owe you an apology as such because you are not the offended party. But harboring a grudge against them is just as toxic whether or not we're the injured party. And releasing that outrage, uh, forgiving by that release and giving up to God to be the one who uh, sees justice ultimately done. That is the only option available to us. Exoneration, forbearance, and release. Forgiveness as an idea encompasses all of these things, and I can't express how important it is for a Christian to know these things, even if they happen to use slightly different terms for each of them. They might call release letting it go, um, or um, exoneration... True forgiveness, in some sense, even though they are all forgiveness. Um, okay. or forbearance, forgive and forget. However you identify them, we need to know that these things are all forgiveness and required of us in different situations. A Christian who only thinks of forgiveness in terms of exoneration, we plagued by guilt for being unable to hold themselves to an impossible standard. It does you no good to exonerate someone who has hurt you with the intention to hurt you again. And Christians who only understand forbearance, but not total slate-cleaning forgiveness of exoneration, they'll find themselves unable to maintain close relationships without keeping a laundry list of old grievances that just corrode the trust and the goodwill that are essential for a thriving relationship of any kind. Jesus told us more than once that we are to forgive as we are forgiven. And if we do not forgive, we cannot expect to be forgiven. And that means a legitimate pursuit of forgiving one another in as much as we can and being reconciled where possible but at least releasing our hurt where we must is as fundamental to a saving faith in Jesus Christ as the act of asking for God's forgiveness for ourselves. It's as important to live a forgiving life as an agent of forgiveness in the world as it is to seek God's forgiveness for our own sins. It's more important than having the right theology, more important than knowing the apologetics, more important than serving in the right ministries or giving the regular tithe or attending church regularly itself. All of those things are subordinate secondary pursuits behind forgiveness. Holding grudges and being unforgiving can be a public sin or a private sin. Some people wear their hearts on their sleeves. Others only expose their true feelings to God. But each of us must take that stewardship of our own heart seriously. Each of us is responsible to search ourselves not only for where we have sinned against God and require His forgiveness, but for where others need our forgiveness and that responsibility falls on us. It's rarely easy. In many cases, it is incredibly testing. But our God regularly does impossible things and if we really declare to be living for the risen King who forgives us, then we should be bound to be surprised by the kind of forgiveness he can accomplish through us. And before I pray, I wanted to show a a clip from a news story that's been as tragic as it has been relevant to today's sermon. And many of you have probably seen it or uh, heard of it already. Exactly one month and one year ago today, a man named Botham Jean was shot and killed in his apartment in Dallas, Texas. Bo was 26 years old, he was an accountant by trade, but also a youth and children's pastor at his church. His killer was a police officer named Amber Geiger, who lived in the same uh, apartment complex exactly one floor down from where Bo lived. And she made the painfully negligent mistake of being distracted as she came home from her shift, parking on the wrong floor, Walking into Bo's apartment, thinking it was hers. She heard activity inside. she drew her gun and encountered Bo in the living room. He was sitting watching TV in a T-shirt and shorts, eating ice cream. And in a moment of panic, Amber mistook him for an intruder and shot him in the heart, killing him instantly. A few days ago, she was sentenced to 10 years' prison for the crime of murder. And at the sentencing, Bo's brother Brant asked to give a statement to speak to the defendant. And that's
1: in this clip here. I can speak for myself. I I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else, and I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die, just like my brother did. But I see, I, I personally want the best for you, and I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of. My family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do, and the best would be give your life to Christ' that's, I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes.
0: Easy to watch, and I hope that none of us are ever confronted with anything close to a loss that tragically pointless. But whatever God does require of each of us in the arena of forgiveness, we should hope and pray to have the depth of forgiveness and courage in our heart as dwells in that young man as well. So let's pray together, Father God. We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you forbear through our wickedness uh, and that you bore the true cost of our sins in your son's sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for the true and final exoneration you've promised for those who follow you. We know that we didn't earn it, but help us, Lord, to become worthy of it by forgiving like you've forgiven us. Give us the wisdom and courage and strength when forgiveness requires all those things. And soften our hearts, Lord, when we need to be softened. Break us open if that's what's required. But if there is any obstruction in us that keeps us from showing the forgiveness that you desire in us, Lord, then save us from our unforgiveness just as you've saved us from our sin. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.